Um, it's, it's, I appreciate, Dean Still, the opportunity to be here. The Tuesday before Thanksgiving is a little bit like the Sunday, at a seminary at least, is a little bit like the Sunday after Christmas, what would you call National Associate Pastor Sunday, where every associate pastor in the world gets their opportunity to preach. Um, but I'm thankful to be here. There's plenty of room to social distance today. That's good to see. Um, I'm just glad SBL was virtual and not in person this year, or we'd have even less of you. But we are we're glad those that truly love Jesus came today, and uh, we can we can be thankful for that. And those that love Jesus slightly, yes, are on Facebook, um, and for the others, we will pray. Um, this place is meaningful to me. Uh, this this particular place right here, the whole place. Um, I got married about right here, um, 15 and a half years ago. Uh, I've heard some of the best, most meaningful uh, formational preaching in my life from this pulpit as a student, as a Baylor student, as a pastor, and as a staff member. Um, I remember on an ice storm night when only 50 of us made it, uh, Robert Smith caught fire and came out of the aisles and preached to about 50 of us one night in a D-Men seminar. I remember Fred Craddock preaching and just slowly walking off the stage to sit down and leaving us all in awe at the power of a question to end a sermon. And we've all been trying to match it ever since, and none of us have. Remember Will Williman slumping in the pulpit, I think on purpose, and saying that you just can't trust preaching not to work. And I've never forgot that sermon. So many sermons, we could go on and on. Um, and it's just very humbling, and I'm very grateful to be here today. Uh, when you preach a lot in different churches, like many of us do here at the seminary, it's tempting to bring out your sugar sticks. Um, but now the problem is we're all online every week, and when we were in tiny places, and so my grandma's heard them all. Um, and she's in the nursing home. She's already liked it on Facebook. Mama, Mama, we're glad you're here today. Um, but a friend and mentor told me recently that the people of God deserve fresh bread and they deserve to, to hear something fresh and new each day. And so we're gonna try to bring some fresh bread today. Of course, the problem with baking bread is every so often, you know, the dough doesn't rise and you've just got a messy lump. So we'll see what happens today. Many sermons this weekend, some that you preached, some that you heard, were probably focused on uh, this unique Thanksgiving season and juxtaposing the season that, that demands and calls for Thanksgiving with the real feelings and, and realities of lament in which we live, the, the loss, as well as the celebrating the, the small mercies and the graces that we've received and we are experiencing during this time. And that's part of what we wanted to provide space for here in worship today. And, and if we were a congregation, um, that's likely the sermon I would wanna preach. It's a needed sermon, a good sermon. But we're, we're not a congregation. We are not the church here today. We are church adjacent. Um, we could get into some theological discussions about what is the church and what is not, but we don't baptize here. We, we are a, a kingdom outpost, training one another, I would say, um, for congregational ministry to serve the church. And so I'd like to talk to us today and, and those following along with us as those not just called to go through this season, torn between lament and thanksgiving, but as those called to lead others through this season, lead families, lead individuals, leads those in grief, those struggling with sin, those whole mess of which we would call the congregation through this season. You know, while this year has been a doozy, this isn't the first Thanksgiving 
when there has been thanksgiving has been muted by grief. It isn't the first season of life where the call to give thanks is threatened to be drowned out by the antiphonal cries of anxiety and of despair, of mourning, of addiction, on and on and on the list of lament goes. And ministers of the gospel, you know we occupy this space every single day of our calling. The space between that tension of, of, of lament and of thanksgiving, of, of praise and of sadness and the threat of despair that can creep up in our souls. We see as ministers, or I felt this way as pastor anyway, that I had a glimpse to see the absolute, absolute best of the people of God. You see the saints being saintly. You see the people of God at work. You see and often receive the, the small mercies, the small blessings, the small and sometimes very large acts of faithfulness which make the kingdom of God march on. And you also see some of the worst <laughs> creation has to offer, the worst the church can be. You see the pettiness and the meanness. Sometimes you receive it. You, you, you visit with people, you walk with people mired in sin year after year. You see the worst of the world. And we live in this tension. We're called to lead people and churches through this murky space that neither ignores lament nor refuses thanksgiving. So today I'd like to speak to us and to you as ministers called to lead the people of God through these seasons where lament and thanksgiving both tug at our souls. Specifically, I want to look at the attitude of our hearts as we approach this season and what attitude of, of heart is required to navigate this space. Our in faculty covenant group, if you are a student, you don't know, faculty does and staff do covenant group together as well and, and because I think we have a Truett contract with some of the Lectio Divina people somewhere where if Truett gathers, we have to do Lectio Divina together. And so we practice Lectio and praying and reading the scriptures together weekly and it's one of the joys of my week and, and I try to make it as often as we can and it's meaningful. And this, this text was our text in Ephesians four or five weeks ago. And there was one word in, in the last verse that, that stuck out at me. And it just hasn't let me go. And so this sermon is really born out of that experience of praying scripture together with one another here as a faculty. The text is in Ephesians 4. And I just want to kind of give the scaffolding and structure of the whole chapter for us because I really think we need to see the whole chapter that kind of funnels down, in my opinion at least, to a point in verse 32 uh, to talk about this. It starts with, and we're just going to fly through it very quickly, um, talks with about the overarching theme of the chapter is unity in Christ and, and Paul or the, Paul's disciple. I won't get into the details there. I just need to recognize for Dr. Still, there's differing opinions of authorship of Paul. We are at a seminary. We have to do those things. Um, it's talking about the unity in Christ. It's to walk in manner worthy of your calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, patience, bearing with one another in love. There's a call to unity bound together in Christ, in Christ alone. 
Let me go a little bit further and say there's grace given to the church in this fivefold gifting of the church. Some of you that are in my life and work of the pastor class know that's one of the main themes of the class of this fivefold gifting of the church of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. That should be fivefold functioning of the church. This gift given to us for our unity and, and for our maturing in Christ to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The author then compares and contrasts new life in Christ with life outside of Christ, the old life. We have a renewed heart, a renewed mind transplanted in us by the Spirit, a new self created after the likeness of God, a self not hardened to the ways of God, a self not darkened in understanding to God, not alienated from God. And we come to 25 and we get these contrasts again of the old self and the new self. Put away falsehood. Speak truth to your neighbor, for we are members of one another. What a great phrase. Don't let anger fester. Don't let the thief continue to steal. We recognize there's thieves, but don't let them continue to steal. Give him work so that he can participate in giving to, uh, to others along with the church. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Only speak what builds one another up. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, slander be put away from you like all malice. And then we come to this last verse. Underneath this banner of seeking unity together, underneath the banner of attaining a unity and maturity in Christ, of striving after Christ's likeness and seeking to live as this new creation and shuck off that shell of the old, the message whittles down to a fine point in 32. Be kind to one another, comma, tenderhearted, comma, if you're reading NRSV, ESV, several others. If you're not reading NIV or others, compassionate. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. It's that comma, tender-hearted comma that hasn't let me go. As if the state of our hearts, the attitude of our hearts that is kind resulting in forgiveness falls in that line, tender-hearted. At the time, as we prayed it, it didn't seem to, to fit there. <laughs> tender-hearted doesn't seem like something translated from Greek. Tender-hearted, I've, I've got a country grandma. Anybody got country grandmas? Mamaw's passed away, but she grew up in the piney woods of Louisiana. Mamma could do, she was the most capable person I've ever met. She could cook things, make things, build things, mend things, sew things, fix things. She healed and she fixed and she valued. She didn't buy new things. She mended old things. Mamma was capable. This feels like if Eugene Peterson broke down the Greek for Mamma and said, Mamma, how would we describe that? She'd say, well, honey, that's just tender hearted. That's what, it didn't seem to stick there, but, but it's, it's so good, tender-hearted. It sounds like something Mamaw would say who called everyone sweetie and honey, no matter who they were. What does it mean to be tender-hearted? It's the attitude of our heart, I think. Tender-hearted is the attitude of the heart that may hold the key to living as this new self, to attaining unity in Christ. Now here's my disclaimer. I think in some ways I've maybe have made my professors, now my colleagues, 
uh, you know, speak well of me and think, all right, we did okay training him up. He hasn't embarrassed us too bad. Where you did fail faculty is, is teaching me Greek. I didn't do well at that. Um, but Joel Weaver's not here, and there's a game this week, so he's probably on Sikkim 365 right now and not listening to chapel. So parsing Greek, translating Greek is not my strength. And when you grow up south of San Antonio, you just don't really have a tongue that feels like you can say it as you need to. But I'm going to potentially embarrass myself, but try anyway. The word here is, is usplanknoi, used here and in 1 Peter 3.8, along with the, as a list of virtues there in 1 Peter. You all in, in Greek 1, finishing up, can translate this more effectively and accurately than me. But it refers to the inward parts that represented the seat of feelings. Your guts is my favorite translation, maybe. The, 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 the visceral stuff, where the visceral stuff of life was thought to reside. It's good feelings from the core of you, from the center of you, and not just general good feelings, but good feelings toward another. It's the antonym of anger, good feelings toward another. The word is set up in contrast to malice and anger. One translated it this way, which I thought helpful. It's the disposition one displays when confronted with another's need or lack or failing, and it chooses to respond in mercy. Tender-hearted. It's listed as a virtue in 1 Peter. I might say it's a virtue in short supply, an endangered virtue in need of cultivation and protection. It seems closely related to that kingdom heart Dallas Willard writes about, the dikaiosune, the kingdom heart created through living out of the Sermon on the Mount in the Christ's kingdom manifesto, as Willard calls it. In the context of this passage, tenderheartedness isn't a feeling that ignores all that is lamentable in the world, but instead deals with them squarely. If this chapter does whittle to a point, it deals with them squarely. The aim of the passage is to create unity in Christ and, and names the difficult realities we will face in achieving and maintaining unity as well as the obstacles we will face personally and corporately. It names that there will be anger there will be hard-heartedness. There will be cunning uh, and craftiness and deceitful schemes. There will be callous people given over to sensuality and greed and, and just throws out that all-encompassing every kind of sinful mindsets and behavior. Those will exist and be obstacles to our unity, obstacles to our maturing in Christ. The tender heart neither denies this reality nor abides the thoughts and behaviors associated with them. We might extrapolate that the tender heart does not gloss over injustice. It doesn't agree to disagree when what is called for is repentance and forgiveness. The tender heart recognizes and provides witness to a new self, a new way of living rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. The tender heart is no pushover, neither passive nor weak. At the same time, the tender heart is not brittle nor absolutist. It doesn't break into pieces when evil shows its face, when sin abounds, when friends disappoint and disagree. The tender heart does not need to cancel people unnecessarily or irrevocably. When confronted with another's need, failing, or lack, 
it chooses to respond to extend mercy. It's difficult, difficult, cultivating and maintaining this tender heart. Matt Snowden, the pastor at First Waco, a friend, a mentor, has rhinos all over his office, and I thought it was the weirdest choice of office decoration. Choose bears. You're in Waco, Matt. Choose eagles, right? Choose something. And we asked him about it, as many of you have, at different points in his office, and he said, I choose rhinos because it's a great picture of ministry. Rhinos have the thickest skin in the animal kingdom and also the biggest hearts. Um, he told me David Garland also said one time that, yeah, they're also dumb and run off cliffs, but, you know, we won't, we won't go with that. The thickest skin and the bigger hearts. I think that maybe gets this idea, this reality of tenderheartedness. It's the combination of the two that's so difficult. It's much easier to be a bleeding heart or a cold heart. But our calling and the witness of Christ compels us towards something greater, something infinitely more difficult to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave us. Any pastor in the room who's done it more than a week or two can call to mind your failing at tenderheartedness. I called to mind the meeting this week after an early morning men's Bible study. One of our most committed members, casually in conversation, offered racial stereotypes about an entire group in our committee, our community, excuse me. And I stood there silent, ashamed, knowing in my heart I would rather be well-liked by this man than to speak up in this moment. Cowardly-hearted. Another story came to mind. I taught our largest adult Sunday school class of largely senior adults and generally had about 10 minutes on those pastoral Sunday mornings between kind of putting away my notes from Sunday school and, and putting on my coat and getting ready for worship and sort of adjusting my mind and preparing for worship and shaking, you know, all the hands and hugs and everything we once did. And that Sunday it announced in Sunday school, we were announcing in church, we were taking a trip down to McAllen to work with Texas Baptist and Sacred Heart Catholic Church in McAllen to minister to refugee families from Central America. And we offered prayer in Sunday school for these families. And an older gentleman met me before I could get to my office, and he had his finger in my chest. And he told me everything that was wrong with me and what we were doing and how I was bringing politics into the church and how this was a poor decision. And we were leading the church down on and on he went. And I lost my heart and I lost my head. He was smaller than me. He was older than me. He was not the pastor of this church. And I put my finger in his face and I backed him 10 feet back into a wall with invective, spoke fire of the biblical mandate and witness to care for the sojourner and the orphan and the widow. I was right and I won and I put him in his place. And I was a cold heart. 
My heart tenderized that afternoon. And I went to him early the next morning at his home, and I asked his forgiveness. And I heard his story. I heard what I did not know, that his only nephew had been a Border Patrol agent killed in the line of duty four years before I came on the scene. We cried together, and we heard one another. We prayed for one another. I did his funeral two years ago. It's hard to cultivate the tender heart, to not lose our head, to not lose our heart, to not be cowardly and yet not be cold. The tender heart can speak and stand for truth, but also love. That is the way of the pastor prophet in this world today. It's a bit of a cliche in Truett circles to say Wendell Berry is one of our favorite authors and that Jaber Crow is a favorite book, but it's one of my top five. I go back to it every January, every other January, and read it to start my year, and it never fails to move me to love God and love neighbor more. The protagonist of the book, Jaber Crow, is a small, if you haven't read it, you should. It's a small town bachelor, barber, and grave digger. Talk about bivocational. He's a lapsed seminarian, a man who struggles with faith yet believes deeply, a man who would never preach and yet provides continual witness to the town. And he struggles with hating a man named Troy Chatham, who represents the death of all Jaber holds dear. And Jaber strives not to hate Troy. Much of the book is given over to his feelings about Troy and his jealousy of Troy and his dislike of Troy. And he mostly fails not to hate him. Troy's the litmus test for Jaber's tenderheartedness. And friends, your ministry will be full of litmus tests for your tenderheartedness, people that will be difficult to love and will try you. One Saturday night, Barry writes... Troy was sitting in his barber shop with men of the community gathered around, and he was prognosticating on his deeply held but lightly formed opinions, this particular opinion being that they should round up all those Vietnam protesters and the communists and give them guns and let them wipe each other out. Barry writes, there was a little pause after that, Nobody wanted to try and top it. It was hard to do, but I quit cutting hair and looked at Troy, and I said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Troy jerked his head up and widened his eyes at me and said, where did you get that crap? And I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Troy said, oh. And then Jaber narrates, it would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except that I did not love Troy. Truett grad Cameron Friend wrote an excellent article last week for Christianity Today, where he makes the case that Dave Chappelle, comedian Dave Chappelle, is the cultural pastor America needs. It's an excellent article, if you haven't read it, it's thought-provoking. And Chappelle, I happen to agree with him that Chappelle has some of the most poignant, biting, cutting, truthful things to say about society today. 
In his 2018 Netflix comedy special, Chappelle laments that we as a culture have developed brittle ears that can't stand, can't handle listening to anyone who disagrees with them. And instead of trying to listen and learn from others and consider their perspective, consider what they're going through, instead we break fellowship and we cancel and dismiss one another. Brittle ears, he calls it. I would take it a step further and say we have a pandemic of brittle hearts, brittle souls, hearts that crumble easily when faced with people and ideas and beliefs with which we disagree. We're losing the ability to live in, in the tensions of reality and retentions and the tensions of differing political spectrums and the tensions of lament and thanksgiving and the tensions of differing beliefs and applications. We're becoming quickly a people either cold or cowardly facing what Edwin Freeman calls a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. It's difficult cultivating this tender heart, developing that thick skin that can hear the needed kernel of truth and criticism and yet refuses to let the rest penetrate to the heart. That thick skin that enables us as ministers to lead boldly, pastorally and prophetically, to speak both pastorally, prophetically, and also maintain that big heart that loves deeply and widely, prodigally in our congregations. That big heart that enables us to bless those who would curse us. That big heart that enables us to love those who voted very differently and very loudly differently than us. That can enter into conversations and relationships with the, the racists in our midst without writing them off forever, that enters into grace-filled, patient community with those continually mired in those same old boring sins they just can't shake year after year. Friends, the church needs your tender hearts. The world needs tender hearts, but it should begin with the church and it should begin with you, their pastors, their ministers, those called to serve. What attitude do you hold in your heart as you approach Thanksgiving with family that may believe very differently from you now? <laughs> what attitudes do you hold in your heart for those in your congregation on the other end of whatever battle you happen to be going through. And you feel that distance between you widening, threatening to become where it can't come back together. Are you locked and loaded? Ready to let them have it? Do you have that stack of conversational turns ready as soon as we get on anything controversial we're going to bring up birds you know something anything to get us off those touchy subjects may god create in you and in us tender hearts tough willing to stand for christ's redemption of all people and all systems to make all things on earth as they are in heaven and also big-hearted, loving, kind, patient, grace-bearing, and forgiving, seeking unity in Christ in spite of all the evidence against it happening in this lifetime.
May your tender hearts be used to heal, heal the brittle hearts and souls all around us, leading each one of us to put our trust, to put on the new self offered in Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. Our song of response is a song of thanksgiving that I will invite you to read as I sing. This is a song I wrote in Spanish a couple years ago and I translated for this service. We give you thanks, O Lord. Thank you for so much life, for the life that you gave us today, for the joy of being in your name. We give you thanks, O Lord. Thanks for you made us new, for your love has forgiven our sins. And you cast them away in the sea. Father God, Holy One, for your grace and you'll never be able to pay. Jesus Christ, Son of God, for you've taken our place in the cross we deserve. Holy Ghost, our strength, for your faithfulness we give you thanks. for the fellowship for you called us from darkness to light and you made us the people of God we give you thanks O Lord thanks for your promises for the hope that you're coming again and you'll take us to live in your God, Holy One, for your grace that will never be able to pay, Jesus Christ, Son of God, for you've taken our place on the cross we deserve, Holy Ghost, our strength. 